You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Follow Jesus. That's what we're about. Following Jesus each day. Following Jesus with our words and with our actions. And it's, you know, it's no surprise that that's the clearest indication of who we are as a group of people. We are a group of people that follow Jesus. It identifies what we do. It tells us who we serve. Now, it might seem simple, but a lot of organizations, a lot of believers, don't have that as their starting point, following Jesus. They might have a different starting point. For example, they might choose a target group of people, a target audience, and they think of that as who they want to serve, who they want to reach and draw in. That might be the starting point. Sometimes an organization or a group of believers looks at something that they want to do. They identify some need, some service that needs to take place, and they are led by that need or that ministry that needs to take place. And that's a target task. Now, these are good things. There's nothing wrong with looking for a group of people or identifying a need. That's good. The problem is not too much focus. The problem is when the driver, the, the leader, the motivator of mission gets lost. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes that happens even with believers as we're seeking a certain kind of people or seeking to meet a certain kind of need. We forget that we are following the one true and living Lord. So it's a difference that's slight. It's a difference that's subtle. But it is one that is worth pointing to. It's one that's worth laying out in a very careful way. I have to tell you that it's been hard uh, with, this, with this sermon series to think about our mission and to look back at the many decades of ministry that have taken place here on Montgomery Boulevard, to look back at the more than a century of ministry that's taken place in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and to, to think about where we're at today in 2020. And to think about how we lean into and press into the very real issues, problems, concerns, real people with uh, struggles that we must deal with today. And to go to Scripture and to look for how we might follow Jesus, that, that can be quite difficult. And I think it always is. Whenever you try to set all of that in 2,000 years of, of Christian history and trying to be very current and in place. In this sermon series, over the last three weeks, we've been, uh, uh, the title has been Drop the Question. We've been asking questions that, that weren't asked of Jesus directly in the stories that we're looking at. For example, uh, two weeks ago, whenever Jesus looked at the fishermen and said, come follow me, the question they didn't ask is, well, where are you going? They just went. They dropped that question and followed Jesus right away. Uh, last week, whenever we looked deeply into the, the Gospel of Matthew, we were in chapter 4, and, and another question gets asked, it, 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 another question that is not asked, 
as Jesus came preaching and teaching and healing and going everywhere, no one asked Jesus, why are you here? Because they could see it. They could see it by the things that he did, and they could hear it by the words that he said. And today, today in week three of this series, we've got another question that I'll come back to in a minute, a question that doesn't get asked of Jesus, but one that's worth our consideration and our focus. If you would, if you open up your Bibles to what Rachel just read to us from Matthew chapter 9. And I want to provide just a little bit of context for this, because uh, Matthew chapter 9 sounds a lot like Matthew chapter 4. It sounds almost the same. In fact, Matthew 4, 23 and Mark, uh, Matthew 9, 35 are almost identical. You can kind of look in your Bible. You can flip back or scroll and see that the words are almost the same. If you substitute that Jesus went to cities and villages for Jesus going to Galilee... It's the same. Now that's kind of odd that there would be that kind of repetition. It's odd that Jesus would be that boring. Well, actually, is it Jesus? Well, I guess it's Matthew, as Matthew puts down these words. But there's a repetition that takes place that summarizes what Jesus is about. It's almost like it's a book cover. At the end of of Matthew chapter 5, and at the end of Matthew chapter 9. So if you think about the context of what happens, that summary of Jesus teaching and preaching and going and healing introduces his primary sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It it leads into the words that are some of the most historic words of Jesus. Well then, in Matthew 8 and 9, we get all of these stories, these vignettes of people coming to Jesus to be healed, of people having demons cast out of them, of people whose lives are radically transformed. We get something of the deeds of Jesus. And Matthew gives us this summary, again, that Jesus came, he preached and he taught and he healed. That is what he was about. So we get this summary of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. Now for us, it even begins to provide the contours of what it looks like to be a follower, sometimes said disciple, of Jesus. Someone who gets in line behind Jesus and lets him lead the way through life. And to make it clear and to make it easily memorizable and likely to make it fit in our four dots of our brand, the words be, do, say, and go, help us get a sense of what it is to be with Jesus, doing the things that Jesus did, speaking the things that Jesus spoke, and going to the places that Jesus will lead us and take us next. It's important to do repetition. I guess Matthew knew that. To provide this summary, to provide this instance, It makes me think of of Jeff Bezos. Do you know who Jeff Bezos is? The owner of Amazon? Well, every year among his many jobs, he writes an annual report letter to let the stockholders know what's going on. And since 1997, when Amazon began, he has continued to send that letter, 
But he always sends the very first letter that he sent in 1997 all over again every year. And in that letter is a line that says, today is the first day of Amazon. We must imagine what this company is like today. Now, something about that really captures the imagination. When you realize, yes, lots has been done, but to think about today and going forward, this is the first day of what it means to be this company. How can we reinvent ourselves? I think about that as a follower of Jesus. That even though we might be able to say simply what it is to be a follower of being and doing and saying and going, that, that that's summarized by following Jesus, it must be reimagined right now in this moment, in this day. You know, there's, I said that I would talk about the question. There's a question that often dying churches will ask, and maybe it's a series of questions. They'll ask things like, well, where are the people? Where, where are the youth? What, why, why aren't the students here? The question that they're asking is, where is the harvest? And here in this story that we've read in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, it's a question that would have been the logical question to ask. Where is the harvest? But let's look. Let's look at just a couple of these vignettes, a couple of the stories. One of them is Matthew. The first verse that Rachel read to us is of Matthew. And Matthew's call by Jesus is an interesting call that he would point to a tax collector, someone who exploits people, someone who is in partnership with Rome to make money, to make a profit on his own people. Jesus goes across the lines of what we might normally think of as a disciple and chooses Matthew, and Matthew instantly walks away. He instantly begins to follow. An unexpected disciple is Matthew, atypical in every way. Someone that should be maybe scorned, should be rejected, but Jesus is hanging out with him. And very quickly, Jesus is even at his home. Tax collectors and sinners are moving all around Matthew, and there is Jesus right in the middle of them. Jesus with tax collectors and sinners. And you know what the religious people, you know, people like me, people who are higher up, you know what they're saying is, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. That's their judgment on, on Jesus. Folks, have you ever noticed how much people like Jesus? Back then, people like Jesus, they want to be around him. Today, people like Jesus, they don't always like the church. They don't always like the hierarchies. They don't always like what they see out of some Christians, but they really like Jesus. Jesus was here in the midst of a party with these people, and he just doesn't even pay any attention. He continues hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. All right, a second story of these many vignettes that happen in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, is a scene where two blind men are following Jesus. Let me pause and let that sink in. Two blind men are following Jesus. Now, let me add to the story. These are blind men that are screaming out to Jesus. Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. And can't you just see their sticks moving back and forth? 
the masses moving and making room for these screaming blind men that are following Jesus. Same word as Matthew and the fishermen. And Jesus stops and pays attention to them. You know, he asks a simple question. Do you trust that I can do this for you? That's what Jesus' question is. Do you have confidence that I can do this for you? And they say, well, yes, of course. And kind of the more religious way that we phrase this is Jesus says, let it be according to your faith. That doesn't really roll off the tongue. You, you probably don't say that in Walmart. Uh, yeah, your bill is $48. Well, let it be according to my credit card. It, it doesn't roll off the tongue. But if you look closely at what Jesus is saying, let it be according to your faith, he's saying probably closer in meaning to what Eugene Peterson puts in the message. Become what you believe. I don't know, I like that. That makes sense. Become what you believe. Well, the last little vignette that I want to point out in these chapters is of yet another person. So we have people that can't see. We have someone who can't speak because they have a demon in them. Something is possessing them making them unable to speak. Well, Jesus cast the demon out, and what did the Pharisees say? By the prince of darkness, or by the powers of evil, or by Satan, he's casting out this demon. The Pharisees, the religious people, say, well, yeah, he's able to do that because he's using the power of evil. They are blaspheming. They're calling the Son of God a devil, does Jesus take the bait? Does he jump in to give them a lesson on blasphemy in this passage? Does he take a position? He completely ignores. This is immediately what is before the passage that we read in verse 35, where Jesus goes and went. He goes. Goes all over Galilee, preaching and teaching and curing. Jesus doesn't take the bait because his words and his actions are integrated. And this is a time when he's not going to give them words. He's going to give them action and let them see the power of the kingdom of God. Well, I don't know about you, but this is a different kind of leader than I'm used to. Jesus is a different leader. He stands out. And so with our time today, I want to really point out what makes Jesus a different kind of leader. Let me read to you verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. The question that doesn't get asked is usually the question that I ask. Where's the harvest? That's not what Jesus says. It's not even what's asked of Jesus. Where is the harvest? No. Jesus looks and sees the crowds. He sees the people. And he has compassion on them. 
What makes Jesus a different kind of leader is his compassion. He's not separated from the people. He cares about their misfortune. He is not ignorant to the plight or numb to what they're going through. Jesus sees where they're at and grieves. and doesn't want it to be so. I'm sure he even grieves like the prophets did in Jeremiah 23 or Ezekiel 34. All of these passages that use the word shepherd to talk about when religious leaders and other leaders, political leaders, let us down. And don't show the care and the concern and the compassion for us. Jesus is a different kind of leader because Jesus transcends wanting His own good, His own success, His own esteem, and cares about the good of the people. That is a leader that stands out. There's no separation from public talk and private action. They are connected. Jesus' words and His deeds align. So Jesus just doesn't bite whenever people give Him a hard time and say, oh, by the prince of darkness, you're doing these things. He doesn't bite. Because Jesus didn't come to die for a position. He came to die for people. Do you notice that? More often than not, he finds himself with tax collectors and sinners, with people that are oppressed and pushed down, people that are marginalized even by the religious elites. You find him with sick. You find him with women. You find him with people that do not have a leader. And Jesus sees this group of people and has compassion on them. So, Jesus' vision is one of compassion. He sees the people and he wants to serve them. And he does so at the cost of his life. Another thing is that Jesus doesn't seem worried about the harvest. Well, for that matter, does Jesus ever seem worried about anything? No. Jesus is not worried about anything. Even about the things that you and I do wrong. But in this case, Jesus is not worried about the harvest. As I've said before, we tend to worry about, well, what about the numbers? You know, what about uh, people? What about our youth? What about uh, the future of the church worldwide? Jesus looks with eyes out on the world and sees the harvest. He sees the people. He sees the crowds. They're right there. So he's not worried about making a point or holding a position, he's worried about those people. And I find it striking that his invitation for us is to prayer. We think about the Lord's Prayer. We think about the many times we see Jesus praying. But here is one place where Jesus commands that they pray. And it's, it's not praying for the harvest. It's praying for laborers in the harvest. Did you notice that? He is inviting these disciples and us. Look in verse 37. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. Folks, when we are pressed to our max and to our limits, and let me tell you, we're there. Each one of us in this room right now is pressed to our max. 
whether it's health concerns, whether it's grieving the loss of a 36-year-old son that dies tragically, whether it's dealing with work day in, day out, family concerns, we're pressed. And it's in those moments that we're calling out to God. Not for the plan that we'll come up with to solve things, but for God to intervene and to do what God does. It puts us in the place of following. That's a beautiful thing. It's an important thing. Because it dislodges us from thinking that it's our power that gets us out of any mess we're in. It's not. It's us aligning ourselves with God. Well, one more thing to point out that I think is valuable that pushes us back into our mission statement a bit are the circles of influence that Jesus runs in. Jesus is ever-expanding his circle of influence. And if we look at Matthew, we, we see what this looks like. Someone who is a tax collector immediately draws to Jesus the people that are like him. The people that he runs with. The people that would come and have a meal in his home. As you think about our mission statement of following Jesus, it's easy to think about fourth-level things, people down the road. We have to start with ourselves, which is what Matthew did. We're starting with how we will learn from Jesus and how we will follow Jesus. We're bringing ourselves to Jesus. But that, that second layer, that second layer of the circle of influence are those people that are closest to us, the people that we live with, our family, our friends, those that we would call on in the darkest of night and say, I need help. Right? Those are that second layer of the circle of influence. How is it that we are Jesus to them? A third layer in this circle of influence are the people that we know, our acquaintances. Maybe we're co-workers, so we know them. They might know our names. We know theirs. But maybe it's not as deep. They're friends. We know them. That's another layer of influence. A fourth layer, and it's often the layer that we think about the most, is the stranger, the one that we don't know, maybe even just the world in its entirety. And a lot of times when we think about being Jesus or going where Jesus goes, we tend to think at that fourth level place of how do we get the Word of God far, far away to the stranger, to the people that we don't know. Well, again, come back to the message of the text where we are following Jesus, bringing the good news to ourselves and to those that are close to us and for sure to the far reaches of the earth, these circles of influence. Why do I phrase it this way? Because it's what I see in Jesus, that if the good news is the gospel of the kingdom of God arrived, come near, people, if they're really going to be influenced by that message, need to see us. I'm talking the people that really know us. They need to see what that rule looks like in our life, with our family, in our marriage relationship, with how we deal with the death of a spouse, with how we deal with the loss of a child, whether that's going off to kindergarten or loss in some other way. The reign of God needs to take place 
in our heart and lives. The first Christian, we are people that follow Jesus. That's what we're about. That's what we do. God invites us, through the words of Jesus, to pray for laborers to be raised up. To pray, not for the harvest, but for those who will bring in the harvest. Here at First Christian, there are places for us to focus in on. In fact, tonight, if you're a parent of teen, Gerald is having a, uh, a meeting for the parents of teens, which is very exciting. I, I, I hope that all of our parents will come and be a part of this at 645 tonight to get to be with the youth sponsors and get to hear about things that are going on. Amanda in children's ministry, another focus of this church. We look for people to help uh, lead our children. Only in the 11 o'clock service, now we're, we're really focused in on that, but the clubhouse needs our help. And groups. Our groups have continued to meet through COVID. Our group leaders are being encouraged to, to pull people alongside of them as co-leaders. We're thinking about and imagining new groups and investing in leaders for the future. This is a place where we can and will be involved. At First Christian, we are a people who follow Jesus. Being with Jesus everywhere we go. Doing the things that Jesus did to eliminate evil and walk away from evil. Saying the things that Jesus said, like, God's reign is here and it's available to you. No, you're not excluded. Come in. And going. Going with Jesus to what's next. Whatever that looks like. The next town, the next job, whatever it looks like with Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are the eternal God. And we thank you for the ways that you've shown us compassion through Jesus, of your eyes and vision for us, and your desire to not question that a harvest is just a number, but that harvest is real people. Would you help give us the same eyes of compassion? Would you help us to see people as they are? And would you help us in a small way to represent your call to them, your welcoming them into the kingdom of God? This is our prayer through Jesus. Amen.